The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. So if you'll turn in your scriptures, please, to Matthew chapter 20. We're reading from verse 17 to verse 34. If you've been here the last two weeks, you're going to continue to see uh, our Lord uh, continuing to teach on the theme Uh, The first shall be last, the last shall be first. And we see this exemplified in three different narratives here. So Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, that's page 825 of your pew Bible. This is the word of God. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Amen, and thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. We pray now, Lord God, that our Savior would increase and we would decrease. That by the power of your Spirit, Lord God, we would receive these words with faith and with ready repentance of our pride and with desire, earnest desire, to make ourselves as servants. Lord, minister unto us that we might be pleasing in your sight in the way we think and speak and behave. 
be glorified in our midst and may Jesus Christ be lifted up for we ask this in his name amen <clears throat> well i think it's a matter of the the greatest importance that where we find ourselves now in matthew's gospel we are perhaps a week sometime around that time period a week or so before our lord's death and he has spent so much time teaching his disciples about the nature of his kingship, the nature of the kingdom, and the conduct expected of the citizens of the kingdom. It's a week before he is put to death, and this is what our Lord is spending time teaching his disciples. No doubt he was preparing them for his death. The shock that must have gone right through the disciples, not just the twelve, but all the disciples, at their Lord and their Master dying before their very eyes. Yes, he was preparing them for his death, but more than that, Jesus was preparing his disciples for life. Life in the Spirit after Jesus himself had ascended back to heaven. He's teaching them, as it were, layer by layer of teaching what the Christian looks like. What the citizens of the kingdom look like, how we think, how we speak, how we behave. He's reminding us we belong to a kingdom of grace. And the great challenge to us is this, that we think and behave like members of the kingdom of grace, not like the members of the kingdoms of this world. We must consider ourselves nothing if we are to be fruitful servants in the kingdom of heaven. We must make ourselves last. We must consider ourselves servants, verse 26. Slaves, verse 27. That's to be the mindset of the Christian. Why? Because it was the mindset of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this teaching once again in these three distinct sections. If you have your Bibles open, and it might help you to have your Bibles open, especially if your Bible has headings, you can see there are three distinct sections, verse 17, verse 20, and verse 29, three distinct teachings, but they all feed into this overarching teaching, this is the character of the king, and this must be the character of his citizens. This is the character of the king, and this must be the character of the citizens of the kingdom. The first section, verse 17, we can ask the question, how does Jesus conduct himself in the kingdom of heaven? How does Jesus conduct himself in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 20, we can ask the question, how should we conduct ourselves in the kingdom of heaven? And the third section, verse 29, what kind of people enter the kingdom of heaven? So we're looking once again at kingdom entry and kingdom conduct. What do we think of ourselves as members of the kingdom? Well, we take our lead from King Jesus. And verse 17, placed pivotally in the center of these teachings, teach us about how Jesus conducted himself in the kingdom. As I've studied these passages over the last few weeks, it's left a profound imprint upon me. Uh, the nature of the teaching and the positioning of the teaching. 
Jesus is going to teach us in verse 17 that his manner of kingdom conduct, why even as the king over the kingdom, is one that is characterized by humiliation, death, and resurrection. His conduct is characterized by humility and humiliation, death, and resurrection. Look at the context. Really impressive, really important. If you have your Bibles open, look at chapter 19, verse 13. That is the first of seven uh, parts of teaching on this idea of kingdom conduct and kingdom entry. The first part is this, the children. The children who are nothing, who bring nothing, our Lord says, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Verse 16 of that same chapter, the second part, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus expecting eternal life on the basis of what he brings, his own merits. The third part, chapter 20, the laborers in the vineyard, those first laborers who thought they deserved more because they had served longer in the kingdom. Three passages of teaching about position and kingdom entry. Then we have this passage on the Lord predicting for the third time now his death. His life, his ministry, his service is characterized by humiliation, by humility, by willing service. And then after that, we have three more passages of teaching about lowliness. We have three before, Christ's teaching on himself, then three after. The first is verse 20 of our passage today where the mother of the sons of Zebedee comes with the most grotesque request, asking that her sons should sit side by side with Christ in the kingdom of heaven. They want position. And then we see those with no position. The blind men sat on the roadside, brought into the kingdom, and they become followers of Jesus. And then the last section, verse chapter 21, which we'll come to next week, Lord willing. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the one who by right has, has right to all power and glory, comes how? Humble and mounted on a donkey. Three passages which speak of position and lowliness. One passage which speaks of Christ's position of lowliness. Three more passages which speak of position and lowliness. Very clearly, the Spirit is laying upon us Through these narratives and these teaching, we are to count ourselves as nothing in the kingdom of heaven if we are to be something. It was with our Lord, so it must be with us. Verse 27, you must count yourself, you must be a slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's the central paradigm of this text, who Jesus Christ is, how he conducts himself, let us then be like him. But more than that, there's much more than just Jesus as example, though he is that, and we must be like him. There's much more in this opening passage of verse 17 than just, well, Jesus behaved like this, so must you. That's the false gospel of the liberal church. It's not completely false doctrine, but it is a false, it is a false gospel. Because the Spirit is revealing here to us the very centrality of Christ's person and work in salvation and in kingdom conduct. The gospel is set forth here. 
And then it teaches us how the gospel transforms our lives, transforms our thinking in the rest of our lives. Kingdom entry through the gospel, kingdom conduct in how we are transformed. Notice what is said here. Our Lord says this in verse 18. We're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Note first the fact of Jesus' prediction. He is very clear about what lies ahead of him in Jerusalem. He's very clear on the facts, the details, the people involved. The Jews will hand him over. The Gentiles will crucify him. In other words, the whole world, as it were, of peoples, Jews and Gentiles, will stand against him against him in his death. And yet it is the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, for whom Jesus came to live and die. Jesus says, I'm going to my death. And it's going to be a crucifixion, the cursed death on a cross, the heaviness of soul that our Lord must have exhibited in this teaching must have been visible to all. The same heaviness that weighed upon him in the garden when he spent all night praying that the Lord would deliver him from this. But our Lord is telling them the crucifixion, self-abasement, Doing the will of him who sent him, being humiliated, listen, mocked, flogged, and crucified, laid in the grave. Friends, for Jesus, these are ministry necessities. Ministry necessities. This kind of humiliation is necessary to his peculiar mission. He says he's going to Jerusalem. The royal city where he could take power on the throne of David. But this is his way to power and the throne of David. This is his way to glory and resurrection. Death, humiliation, doing what his father told him to do. He takes the disciples aside. There's a greater crowd going with him to Jerusalem. We know that from verse 20. But verse 17 says he takes his disciples aside, a private audience with Jesus. He's setting them apart from the crowds, preparing them for what is to come. The great heaviness of the announcement. Now for the third time, he's going to die. But that's not all that he says in the announcement, is it? Wonderful announcement. No, because he says he will be flogged, mocked and flogged and crucified And he will be raised on the third day. He will be raised on the third day. Yes, Jesus is is painfully aware of the darkness and the curse of crucifixion. Of the humiliation of mockery and flogging and trial. But he's also well aware of the resurrection. Friends, the gospel involves resurrection the gospel involves resurrection and here jesus is reminding us that he is a savior a leader a king like no other 
Every other leader that had lived before him and lived after him, every other despot, dictator, ruler, lies smoldering in the grave. But not Jesus. He was raised on the third day and ascended into heaven. And he is sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. Friends, here is the gospel. Jesus came to live. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to be raised from the dead. So that we might have life and we might have health. Yes, we must come to terms with this gospel. We bring nothing to it except our own sin. And it is Jesus who is the Savior. And with this salvation comes a way of living, a mindset of lowliness and humility. But it is not a mindset of lowliness and humility which saves anyone in this room. It's Jesus that was nailed to the cross. And there was no other with him. Jesus alone. We must come to terms with this gospel. Full and free in Jesus Christ alone. He who is raised from the dead will surely raise us. And as scripture says, he has also raised us to newness of life. And that's what this passage is speaking of. The gospel of Jesus Christ delivering sinners from sin and raising us to newness of spiritual life. And there's a slip in that newness of spiritual life in the life of two of his disciples in verse 20. We ask the question here, how should we conduct ourselves in the kingdom of heaven? Because the disciples here got it badly wrong. Let's, let's be very clear. They got it badly wrong. Notice the first word of verse 20, it's then. It's entirely unspecific as to timescales. It just means it happened in, a, in a, a, a set of circumstances, in series, but it doesn't tell us when. But the Spirit has placed verse 20 right after this teaching in verses 17 to 19 for good reason. What is asked of Christ here by James and John's mother, and they by implication, is entirely incongruous, out of place with the teaching that precedes it. It's entirely out of place. It's as out of place as a person with a splinter in their finger complaining how much pain they are in to someone who's dying of cancer. It's so out of place. If we were there, we, our jaws would hit the ground. James and John's mother come up to Jesus and say, Grant that they will, sit at, they will sit at your right and your left in the kingdom of heaven. What in the world? And the Spirit has done what? Put it right next to our Lord's teaching on what he must go through, on what his mind is like. And they immediately say, Give us position. Give us the greatest position there is. Jesus tells them, you don't know what you're asking, verse 22. Perhaps even Jesus is astonished at this. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink, the cup of God's wrath? More remarkable is their answer. We are. Complete lack of self-knowledge. A complete lack of self-knowledge on on the part of the disciples. 
Jesus tells them, actually, well, you will. You will drink the cup. It's not exactly the same cup, but it's close enough. Uh, James will be killed with the sword, Acts 12. Uh, John is ultimately exiled on the island of Patmos. We know not what happened to him in the end. Jesus is saying to them, to have position like me in the kingdom of heaven, you must drink the cup that I drink. Which, of course, no one could. Because no one could die for the sins of the world. He's connecting position with his achievements. That's interesting, isn't it? But consistent with the rest of the theme of the passage, even after he tells them, you will drink of the cup, he still says to them, it is not for me to give to you to sit at my left and right. Those who think they deserve position and glory and honor in the kingdom will not receive what they think they deserve. That's what our Lord is saying. Even if you could drink of my cup, he says, it is not for me to give to you to sit at my right and my left. Naturally, this makes the rest of the disciples indignant. Of course it would. Who are these two to think that they should sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand? Why, that's for me to sit there. Possibly they think that. And all this situation gives rise to Jesus' teaching of verse 25. He's reiterating the theme of these seven passages together. The kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdoms of this world. It's a kingdom of grace, kingdom of mercy, kingdom of humility. He says in verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, position, And the great ones exercise authority over them. Position again. The Gentiles rule for position, glory, might, power, fame. What does Jesus say, verse 26? It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so. The kingdom of heaven is to be categorically different to the kingdoms of this world. And the citizens of the kingdom are to be categorically different in character and practice to the kingdoms of this world. And that's precisely what Jesus says. But whoever would be great among you must must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You can see what our Lord is saying, can't we? Greatness in the kingdom is not about thumping one's chest and shouting loudly about one's achievements. It's about being a servant. Do we hear that, friends? Jesus says a slave, less than a servant. The lowest of the low in society. We must make ourselves servants. Friends, is that your heart? I fear that some of us here need to hear this particularly today. While there are many servants in this church, some of us lag behind in service. We expect to be served. Rather than to serve. Our Lord says that's contrary my character. It's contrary the kingdom. If you would be great you must be your servant. If you are first you must be slave. Even as the son of man. Just like the son of man. 
Because he behaved this way, the king of glory came as a servant to give his life a ransom for many. So too should his followers be servants. Friends, are you one of those people who in life and in the church takes and does not serve? Who takes and does not give? You must earnestly wrestle with yourself, your character, your conduct, your mindset. Jesus, the King of glory, died on a cross. Yes, to give us salvation by all means, but also to set the tone of service and character in his kingdom. It's very clear, verse 27 to 28. He ransomed us from our dead and selfish ways. And would we be served? We should be tripping over each other to serve each other in the church, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. We should be servants. Those who position themselves, as it were, at the head of the table will be moved to the foot. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And that's really the narrative of the blind men in verse 29. What kind of people enter the kingdom of heaven? We saw the rich young ruler, that's the comparable teaching in our in our structure he came with all his works all these commandments he said i've kept from the days of my youth and he left jesus sorrowful not in the kingdom at least not at that point we've had the disciples who want prominence but before them we've had the the workers in the vineyard who thought they worked harder and longer and thus deserved more We'll see in the triumphal entry the king of glory come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, lowly and contrite. We're seeing here now in this teaching the last becoming first, the outcast becoming followers and disciples of Christ. Who have we got here? We've got two beggars, undoubtedly. They're blind. They can't even see the Savior coming. They rely on others to tell them that Jesus is passing by. They've got nothing. These are the kinds of people that in Jewish society were outcast, despised. And the Jews had a very mechanistic and incorrect view of them. That they had such great suffering because they were such great sinners. That's why the crowds told them to shut up when they cried out to Jesus for mercy. Oh, the Lord doesn't want to be bothering with your sort. What a scandalous thing to say. Yet here we see faith. Here we see faith. I believe true faith. Those who have been brought into the kingdom. Can we say this? Here they are in the gutter of the road and of life. At least in Jewish society. But two men who know who Jesus is. Isn't that amazing? Two men who know who Jesus is. Jesus passes by. What do they say? Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
Oh, what a blessed cry from these two men. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. I don't expect that anything more could be said that would have turned the heart of the Lord to them in that very instant. They confess his deity as Lord. They confess his messiahship as the son of David. And on the basis of the God King standing before them, they cry out, have mercy upon us. They profess him to be who he is. This is one of the great confessions of the Gospels. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And with those two titles of Lord and Messiah, what's there in the middle? The very essence of all these passages. They are men who know that they require mercy. They don't think they deserve anything. They haven't come with all their works like the rich young ruler. They haven't come with false expectations like the laborers in the vineyard. They've not come like the disciples pleading for position. No, they've come pleading for mercy because they know they're not owed anything. Is that us? Do we know here today we are owed nothing by God? And we come pleading his mercy. We are only owed by God when God obligates himself to us in covenant they cry for mercy jesus says to them what do you want me to do for you and they said lord let our eyes be opened and in pity the record tells us in pity and compassion he touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight immediately they recovered their sight but the clue to faith and devotion is not just in their confession of the christ It's in what they did next. The Gospels are full of records of those who received healing and then went nowhere near the Christ. What does it say of these two? They recovered their sight and followed him. The word follow in Greek is the word for disciple. They were disciples of Christ. They were part of that crowd that gathered with him and followed him. They confessed him to be God and Messiah. And they were ready to follow him. Can we say this? The last in the kingdom became first. The least became those numbered in the greatest. What blessing there is in the kingdom of heaven for those who count themselves as nothing. As I've mentioned, friends, we're seeing this pattern in the text. Three passages which illustrate the lesson, the central passage of Christ's death and resurrection. Three more passages which again illustrate the lesson. What we're seeing is this. Jesus is here reminding us of two matters. There is a kingdom ethic, a behavior, a conduct. Once we are saved, we are given over to service. Once we are saved, we are sanctified unto service. 
And we must do so fully without reference to position or reward or any such folly. We simply serve because we have been saved. We're to give ourselves to the church of Jesus Christ. We're to give ourselves to our families, to our neighborhoods, to our places of employment, wherever we might be. Become servants that God might be glorified. That the gospel might go forth in our own lives. People might ask us of the hope that that lives within us. Servants. Not those who are masters and served. But even more important than that. Even more important than that. Is our Lord's service. Not just the manner of his service. It's not just about ethics and behavior. This is about salvation, kingdom entry, being saved, having your sins forgiven. Christ's service is similar to ours, but differs in this fundamental way. He came to live and die and be raised again, that you might be liberated from all your sins. And there's not one other in the history of the world who has served like that. This is the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's provided a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. Are there any here today who don't believe this? We would urge you, dear friend, with all that is within us, to come to Christ for faith. Come to Christ for repentance. Come to Christ for forgiveness. There's no other way. If you have another way, come and talk to me. We'll talk it over. There is no other way. Except the perfect righteousness of Christ. The perfect sin-atoning death of the Savior. To remove our sins from us and grant us a righteous standing before God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And if you have been saved, as many of us have, praise the Lord. Our salvation is unto a conduct. It is to service. Devote yourselves to being servants. And may the mind of Christ, our Savior, dwell in us richly from day to day. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do ask you, you who are more full of grace than we are of sin, equip us with that mind of the Savior. Work in us faith, repentance, trust, self-knowledge, Lord God, that we might serve you well. Oh, be pleased, Father in heaven, to bless us richly. We desire that you receive all glory. And we ask that you will grant us the faith to live our lives to that great end. May you be glorified, our Father in heaven. May you be glorified, eternal Son, Lord Jesus. May you be glorified, eternal Spirit. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.